you would, open your Bibles to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 6. As we continue with this story of Gideon, and we find a man who is not unlike us in many ways. Let's just remind ourselves of, of how we got to where we are in this book of Judges this morning. If we recall, Midian was oppressing Israel. Of course, this is through the whole cycle of the book of Judges where, where things go from, from security to sin to suffering to supplication to salvation. And there's rest in the land again until we shift back around and the cycle goes round and round. Well, here we have begun a new cycle with the life of Gideon. Midian was oppressing Israel to such an extent that they were like the swarming locusts that would come into the land and devour everything, leaving nothing behind. In order to avoid being utterly destroyed, the people of Israel had carved out dens into the hillside in order to hide and cover themselves so that they could survive while Midian did their thing. When the people cried out to the Lord, God sent a prophet to explain why this was happening. God says, I have done all these things for you. I have called you out of the land of Egypt. I have made you my people. I have brought you into the promised land. I have fought for you. I have established you here. And yet, he says, you have not obeyed my voice. But instead of additional pronouncement of judgment that we would often see after a prophet explains why these disastrous events have unfolded, the narrator takes us to an expression of God's grace on his people when God visits Gideon. Gideon, who is presented as a fearful man, he's out threshing wheat, not on the threshing floor, he's doing it in the wine press. He's doing it in secret to avoid being seen by the Midianites. He's trying to hide from the enemy. And it is there that God speaks to him and he calls him this mighty man of valor. And declares that God is with him and tells him that Gideon will strike Midian because God is with him. Gideon is skeptical. He is not quite convinced. He requests a sign and God is gracious enough to give him that sign and Gideon at that point, realizes that he was in the presence of God, and he is now understandably not afraid of the Midianites, but afraid for his life before Almighty God, because he has been in the presence of the Lord. But God graciously reassures him. He says to him, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And in response, Gideon built an altar to the Lord in worship. Last week, how we talked about how all of these events, how all this unfolded was just this tremendous expression of God's grace. Israel did not deserve God sending forth another deliverer. And Gideon certainly was not the sort of man we would have chosen for the task to be the deliverer. But God was showing His grace. That brings us up to the text that we are going to study today. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, beginning with verse 25, where we will see God's people in their relationship to idols. Judges 6, beginning with verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull. 
And the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that, is, that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. First here we see that God's people must tear down idols. God's people must tear down idols. God has called Gideon for a specific purpose. It is to rescue the people from the hand of Midian. But there's a problem. The problem is that the people have not obeyed the voice, have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Right? This is the pronouncement of the prophet against them. God says, I have established you in the land, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's Judges chapter 6, verse 10. I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. They are worshiping the false god Baal and his goddess mistress Asherah. We've talked about these gods in the past. This is a refresher. This, this is really an expression of the abject depravity that was present in the land. And these individuals, these are the fertility gods. Worship involves sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes in an attempt to provoke Baal to do the same with Asherah. These gods represented everything that was wrong with the Canaanite culture that was around them. And they represent everything that was wrong with the hearts of the children of Israel as well. We've discussed how as we've moved through this book, one of the sub-themes or one of the even primary themes of the book is the canonization of the people of Israel, how they are progressively becoming more and more like the world around them instead of being the holy set-apart people that God has called them to be. Thus, God issues His pronouncement against them, you have not obeyed my voice. The people are drifting further and further into their canonization and further and further away from the Lord. In God's covenant he made with Israel, he was very clear. If you follow after these false idols, you will be judged. But if you return to me, I will restore you. Thus we find the necessity to tear down the idol. Israel cannot worship both God, Yahweh, and Baal. One has to go. They cannot both exist simultaneously in the land. When Joshua first brought the people into the land after they had conquered the majority of the land, they had, they had settled out who was going to live where, divided up all the, all the tribes. I'm, I'm just, in fact, let's, let's just turn back to the book of Joshua for a moment because I'd, I'd like us to see something here. Joshua chapter 24, and it is in this text that, again, this is the, this is the conclusion of Joshua's life. He is coming to the end of his life. He's going to, to die soon, and, and he calls the people, are you going to obey the voice of the Lord? Are you going to choose to follow Him? And he issues this charge before the people, and I'm going I'm to pick things up here in, in chapter 24, beginning with verse Verse 14. After declaring all the great things that God had done for the people, Joshua said this, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. 
Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. I find that interesting. Even in the, even in the midst of them conquering the land and, and settling out the land, there were still remnants of the old ways of, of serving these false gods that were still within the camp of Israel. So Joshua was calling to them, you got to get rid of those. They cannot stay. Verse 15, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua has set his flag. He has planted his foot. He knows that he will not waver. He and his house, they will serve the Lord. He, he throws down the gauntlet. He throws down the challenge to the people. Today is the day. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to worship these false gods? If that's what you're going to choose, go for it. Or today, will you serve the Lord? And see how they respond. Verse 16, the people answer it. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And they go on to explain, yeah, we know everything that God has done for us. Why would we ever forsake? No, we will serve the Lord. And for the sake of time, I'm going to skip down to verse 21, where Joshua, he, he knows that the people are going to be tempted in the land. He knows that they're going to be tempted to forsake the Lord. And so he, he kind of challenges them. It's like, yeah, no, it's too much for you. You're not going to be able to do it. But the people double down. They say, no, 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 we are going to follow through with this commitment. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself. That you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people cried out to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. And then following from there, Joshua sets up this, this monument that is to serve as a reminder of the commitment that the people made that day. They made this commitment, we will serve the Lord, his voice we will obey. Implicit within that is not only this commitment that they themselves will observe that which the Lord had commanded, but also that they will pass it down to future generations, which was part of God's command to teach your children these things. The monument was to serve as a reminder that the children would, so that their children would look upon that and be instructed, Lord, why, hey dad, why is this monument here? Well, son, it is because... When Joshua established us in this land, we made this commitment that we will follow the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. And they said, we will obey the voice of God. So we cannot serve both. The Israelites could not serve both. Joshua was calling them to make a choice between the two. They cannot serve both. Both And so as God raises up Gideon, he commands him, you must tear down the altar to Baal. You must tear down the Asherah pole that is beside it. 
I am your God. There is no other. These people cannot continually offer their worship to these false gods and expect that I, the one true God, will continually rescue them. One has got to go. And so Gideon is to take this bull as a very specific bull, a bull that is the second bull that is seven years old. He's to use that bull to tear down the false altar and then build up an altar to God and offer that same bull on the altar to the Lord using the wood from the Asherah pole for fire. Now, some of those details might not strike us as super significant. Okay, it's a second bull. It's a seven-year-old bull. Okay, what's the significance in all of this? But all of these details are very specific to carry significant weight. But this was not just any old bull. This was a very specific bull that was reserved for ceremonial purposes. And here it is this bull is being brought for the task. And not just any wood was used to light the fire. It was the wood from the false altar, from the, from the Asherah pole that was chopped down, that had to be cut down. That pole was what was hacked apart to be used to light the fire for the burnt offering. This was not just a statement about needing to turn to the Lord, but it was a highly symbolic and highly weighty statement. And we think of today, even in our, in our current culture in the last few years, we've heard all these people talk about you know, trying to pull down statues and stuff. Well, why do they want to pull down those statues? Why do they want to pull down these monuments? Well, they represent something that they find to be repugnant to them and they want to get rid of it. There's, some, there's something that's represented by it, and, and by tearing it down... They're saying, we are done with the old ways. It's happened in our recent culture. It's gone back. It's happened over the last several hundred years. You think of even some of the revolutions that have occurred in Europe. There's always statues that get pulled down. When the Soviet Union crumbled, thousands of statues of Lenin were torn down. Why? Because we're done with that. We're not going that way anymore. That is not representative of who we want to be anymore. A similar idea here. Just as tearing down statues in our modern context carries that symbolic weight, so do these actions. Gideon is not just to tear down something benign and, and just replace it with something else. He is to do so in a highly symbolic manner that makes a massive statement about who the one true God is. We're not just tearing down the idol, we're using it to burn the sacrifice unto the one true God. This is a statement that communicates that there can only be one God in Israel. This is the principle behind the words that Jesus utters in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot simultaneously serve two masters. It's true for the people of Israel. It's true for us as well. We would do well to consider this for our own lives. So often we are, we are tempted to be conformed to our own culture rather than being conformed to the image of God's Son. We make idols of the things around us, be that it could be money, which is what Jesus' point was in Matthew 6. You cannot serve both God and money. Uh, that, was, that was the point there. Or it could be other things that we idolize, be that our families or our careers, our notoriety, just being well-liked by others or, or our own selves. 
In fact, I think all of these things actually serve to worship our own selves. Our own selves become the idol that we lift up. We seek to serve our own interests with money, career, family, etc. But God calls us to die to self. To set aside the things that our flesh strives for in our own self-interest. We're to put off the old man and to put on the new man. These are things that we must cut down out of our lives. They need to be torn down. Tear it down. It has to go. Gideon is called to tear down the idol from his own culture. So Gideon obeys. God issues the command and Gideon follows through. Back in Judges chapter 6, verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. The narrator of Judges, he doesn't always give us these editorial comments that gives us pictures into the heart motives of what's going on. So most of the time he's just telling a story, like this is what happened, these are how the events unfolded. But every once in a while he gives us a little picture behind the curtain. And he gives us a snapshot into what's happening in the hearts of the characters. And here he gives us details of Gideon's motives. Gideon is still afraid. Gideon is still a man controlled by fear. Remember how we first found Gideon. He's threshing out wheat, but not doing it in the normal place. He's, he's hiding in the wine press. Even as God is, is declaring to him that God is with him, he is skeptical. As God tells him, you are going to fight Midian, he's saying, no, no, no. how is this even going to work out? I'm the, I am the smallest guy in the smallest family of the smallest tribe in Israel. Like, what am I supposed to do? And he asks for a sign, and God gives him the sign. You think that would bolster his faith? You think that would strengthen him? But when he is given this command, he still goes forward in fear. It's kind of remarkable, isn't it, that, that we, Gideon is this man that is often held up as this great hero of the faith. In fact, he's, Gideon's name is mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the great hall of faith. And it's like, how's that? <laughs> How does he get there? Because from a human perspective, we look at this and we see, this is a man of very little faith. Like, this is not a confident man. In fact, we could even call him a coward in many ways. He, God gives instructions and he does obey, but he does it in a cowardly way. Well, I don't know about you personally, but I'm, personally I am grateful for these details of the text. I know that I am often tempted by fear of man in my own life and make decisions based off of what, what I think other people around me might want. And so I'm grateful to see the testimony of God's Word that, hey, you know, God uses individuals that are not perfect. Or God uses individuals that are, they need their own faith strengthened and bolstered as well. And so we look at individuals like this and we 
we should seek to learn from this, right? We, we need to be people controlled by faith and not fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of, of power and of love and a sound mind, right? That is what He has called us to. But even in our weakness, God's grace is greater than all of our sin. And He can strengthen us for that which needs to be accomplished. So Gideon does what he is told to do. As it turns out, his fears are actually fairly well founded. Right? Like he's afraid. <coughs> excuse me. He's afraid of the people. Well, he's afraid that they're going to do something to him. Well, as we continue to read on, it's like, well, he, he had good reason to have that fear. Judges chapter six, verse twenty-eight. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. This, this description follows the exact pattern of what God said to do. Tear down the altar, cut down the pole, offer the second bull on the new altar. That's what God said to do, and so that's what Gideon did. And then the, when the men arise in the morning, they see it exactly as God had instructed Gideon to do. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? They're incredulous here. They're, they're, just, they're shocked at what has been done. They, who has done this thing? And after reading on, after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Here, as we see God's people, as God's people must tear down idols in that process, God's people must expect opposition. God's people, when they when they attack that which is held dear by the culture or even their own flesh, they must expect opposition. When Gideon tore down that idol, it enraged the people. It enraged them. How dare they? Who has done this thing? How dare that person do such a thing? Even though Gideon had acted in secret, somehow the story got out. Someone told him he he had 10 of his buddies come help him. Maybe one of those spilled the beans. And so the people approached his father and demanded accountability. And it's interesting. They, they are demanding accountability and they want Gideon to die. Why do they want Gideon to die? It's interesting the law of Moses, what, the, it, what God's law has to say about those who engage in idolatry. What, what does it say? Those who engage in idolatry should die. This is the law of Moses. If you go after any other God other than the one true God, it is the death penalty. That is what is right under the law. Well, the people have not only set up an altar to a false God, but, but they have put God, that God in the place of the one true God. They have assigned the same penalty to, to blaspheming that false God that Yahweh demanded for idolatry. These people, have, they've turned the entire law of Moses on its head. They've got it completely upside down and backwards. And this is what sin does. As sin tempts us, as sin entices us, it, it tries to, to get us to believe that yeah, these things that the Bible says evil, well, they're not so bad. 
right? This was the devil's ploy in the garden. He could turn everything on its head. Adam was supposed to lead his wife, and together they were supposed to have dominion over the animals, and Satan turned that on its head with the animal commanding the woman who then gave to the man. The scripture warns us in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And this is what has happened to the people in the land. They have taken the law of God, they have turned it on its head, and now they demand blood. We see this as another one of the sub-themes that runs throughout the pages of Scripture, the opposition to God's people. Whenever reform takes place, whenever there are individuals that are seeking to proclaim the Word of God and, and hold forth what God has said, there are always those who resist, who love their sin and desire to hang on to their pathway that leads only to death. But nevertheless, the idols must go. The idols must go, and we must reckon with the fallout. Our, our natural tendency is going to be the same as that as, as Gideon, right? We're, we're, our natural tendency is going to be towards fear. But the question comes, will we do what is right? Well, the narrative goes on, and we see how Gideon's father responded. Verse 31 and 32 but Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Zerubbabel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar." Gideon's father defends his son as if to say, okay, you know, if Baal is worth his weight, let him fend for himself. If you really think that Baal is all that in a bag of chips, like, he, he's going to be okay. Like, just, just let him prove it. Let Baal defend his own honor. And that line of reasoning in that moment, it, it, it won the day. The people were satisfied for now. It's kind of interesting, this, this, that line of reasoning has actually showed up a few times in Scripture. In the New Testament, in the, in the book of Acts, a similar, similar line of reasoning was played out. When the apostles were proclaiming the gospel of Christ, the Pharisees hated that message. They wanted to destroy the disciples. In Acts chapter 5, verses 34 and following, we find this text, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. I'm going to skip down to verse 38 for the sake of time where, where he issues this, this charge. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men... It will fall. It will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. 
Joash has similar advice there. Right? There's a similar concept. Okay, if, 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 if this false God is really something, if, if he has any kind of power whatsoever, let him contend for himself. We'll see what comes of this. We know that ultimately in the end, truth will win out. Truth will win out. If Baal is God, he will be vindicated. But if Yahweh is God, Yahweh will be vindicated. We may not always see it in the immediate moments. It may not even be in our lifetimes, but we know that God will be vindicated. And when every false idol and every evil thought and every word is brought to nothing, there will be a day when every knee will bow and every every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Until then, God's people are called to speak the truth and to let the chips fall where they may. We are called to be obedient, to be faithful, and let God handle the rest. Well, as the story of Gideon, it moves in a certain particular direction. Gideon, he, he's demolished the altar, and he set up Yahweh's altar in its place. In these acts, God is preparing Gideon for another task, and that is the deliverance of the people. Because it's after these events, it is only after God has used Gideon to, to accomplish this in the midst of this, that now we see Midian is coming back. Midian is, is going to be returning for their usual spoil at the expense of the Israelites. So we finally are, are finally going to get a, a glimpse of this, this man of valor that the angel of the Lord spoke of that we haven't seen very much of so far. We're finally going to get a glimpse of that here, but it's, it's not because Gideon because of what God is doing in Gideon's heart. Verses 33 through 35. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpets and the Abazarites who were called out to follow him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Gideon is clothed by the Spirit, divinely enabled for the task of deliverance. So we see when God gives a task, the principle here, when God gives a task, God's people are divinely equipped for their mission. In what seems like an uncharacteristic stroke of courage and bravery for Gideon, this man who has done nothing but hide, nothing but cower, nothing but do his instructions and do them in secret, now he sounds the trumpets. He calls out to the tribes to himself to assemble an army to fight against Midian. But not so that he could do it in his own strength. The Spirit clothed Gideon for this task. Gideon would not be the one volunteering for this on his own, right? We, we know this as the text has shown us who Gideon is. This man is not the kind of man who's rallying the troops. But God, working in Gideon, 
brings this about. God it was equipping Gideon for the task, and God equips his people for the tasks to which he calls them. God has given Gideon a task. He's given him instructions, and then he has given him his spirit to accomplish that task. I find this to be encouraging as I read Scripture and as I read the, the consistency of God and His Word about how when He calls His people to something, He gives them the, the Spirit to enable them to accomplish that task. Often we're tempted to look for our equipping from the things of the world. Right? We, we just think that we need a, we need a better system or we need, a, we need to gather something else to ourselves. And we, we fail to look to the Lord to accomplish the tasks that He has given us. We look to ourselves, we look to the world, we look for our equipping in all the wrong places. But God wants us wholly dependent upon Him and Him alone. And so as we are going to see the next section of this story, which we're not going to have time to get to today, God is going to set things up in such a way that as He has equipped Gideon for this task, as He gives His Spirit upon Gideon to, to do that which He has instructed him to do, He's going to work out the events in such a way that make it clear that it was never Gideon that was accomplishing the victory. That it was God working all along. God wants us wholly dependent upon Him. And the next section is going to underscore that point. God is the one who saves. God is the one who equips us for righteousness. It is all of grace. And because it is all of grace... Scripture says in the New Testament, God is faithful, He will also do it. We must remember this. Remember as we, as we are called to follow after the Lord, as we must confront idols in our own lives or perhaps even in the culture around us, we must remember that as we anticipate that there will be opposition, whether that's our own flesh rising up against us and we, we do battle with our own flesh or whether it's against those within the culture who want to oppose God and His Word. We must remember that it is God who is the one who is at work within us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Gideon was a man who was born, who lived, who died, all of that before the cross of Christ. Many look to him as a hero, oh, Gideon. In fact, later on we'll see, they're going to shout out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Yeah, Gideon, what a great guy. As we read this story, we find this is a man, he's very unhero-like, right? And yet God used him. God used him. He's in the hall of faith because even though he often lived in fear, he ultimately trusted God and God used him to preserve his people so that the real hero would step on the scene in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that we are given the grace to live for God without fear. We don't have to live in fear. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of love and of a sound mind. And so as we consider the, the, the story of Gideon, as we consider what 
how, how the author of Judges is, is building this story into the narrative, showing us that this man is a man of, of fear, and yet he, he trusts God and, and acts in faith, even if he does so timidly. And so God works within him to preserve his people. We see the grace of God on display. And so we pray that God would likewise give us the grace to trust Him, but to do so without fear, that we may courageously stand for what's right. Because we cannot serve two masters. One's got to go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this story from Gideon. How it shows us the necessity that we must choose to follow you. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot have idols within our lives while we still claim to worship and honor you. I pray, the Lord, that you would give us the courage to remove the idols from our own hearts and from our own lives. I pray, Lord, that you would give us great courage as we seek to speak into the culture around us. Lord, often when we go after that which our culture holds dear by simply speaking the truth of your word, it is necessary to call out sin. It is necessary to speak to that which your word speaks. And this is an offense to the world around us. And so we know we will expect and we will face opposition. Pray that you would give us courage. I pray that we would not act in fear, but I pray that we would act knowing who you are, what you have done for us, knowing the necessity that these idols cannot remain. If we are to call people to be in a right relationship with you, they must address the idols in their lives. They must turn and trust in Christ alone. Give us wisdom, give us boldness, give us courage, give us your grace. For it is only in your grace that we are sufficient to that which you have called us. But I thank you and I praise you that you do equip your people. And I pray for this grace to be more evident in our lives as we move forward. Thank you and I praise you again and I pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.